0: Good morning, everybody. Nice to be with you again. My name is Michael Millerman, millermanschool.com. I thought that this morning we would go through a little bit of Martin Heidegger's introduction to philosophy, thinking, and poetizing. This is, just so you know, spontaneous, off the cuff, not scripted, just a morning live stream so we can be together and go over some Heidegger. There are worse ways to start the week. Uh, The present volume, this is partly a lecture course that was announced for the 1944-1945 winter semester under the title Thinking and Poetizing. And as you see from the editors forward here, the lecture course had to be canceled after the second session as a result of an intrusion from the National Socialist Party in the middle of November 1944. This, which again we'll be reading part of here in a moment, was also Heidegger's last academic lecture as an official tenured professor His next lecture called What is Called Thinking only followed seven years later after his teaching ban was lifted. So this is Heidegger's last academic lecture. He couldn't complete it. And after this, he was banned for seven years from teaching. Okay, I won't read the whole translators forward here, but I wanted to give you a little bit of that context. 1944, uh, volume 50 of the Collected Edition. Uh, What I really like about this, which you'll see right from the beginning, is that Heidegger addresses a question that you sometimes get, sometimes have, which is, how do I get an introduction to philosophy? What would that entail? What would that mean? What is an introduction to philosophy? Is it just learning the concepts, the sub-disciplines of philosophy, like ethics, logic, metaphysics, ontology, philosophy of law, philosophy of religion? Is that how you get an introduction to philosophy? Maybe. That's one way. But here, Heidegger opens with something that might surprise you or not, if you're used to Heidegger's ways of thinking, which is that he begins with the impossibility of an introduction to philosophy. Why is an introduction to philosophy impossible? I always thought it was kind of interesting, so that's what I wanted to read with you and share with you. Hello, those of you who are here. Good to be with you, as always. So the introduction is, as you'll see here, uh, okay, introduction to philosophy as a guide to genuine thinking through the thinker Nietzsche and the poet Holderlin. And remember here, you have not just introduction to philosophy, but thinking and poetizing. Nietzsche and Holderlin. So section one, the impossibility of an introduction to philosophy. Whoever plans an introduction to philosophy presupposes that those who are to be introduced to philosophy stand initially outside of it. Philosophy itself thus counts as an area somewhere that consists of knowledge and principles, which many people might bypass throughout their lives and from which they might thus remain closed off. Like it's a specialized field of study and unless you've done uh, intentional introduction to it, then you just bypass that specialized field of study. That's one way of looking at it. But although this notion of philosophy is widespread, it misses the essence of philosophy insofar as there is no such outside separated from the human essence that could constitute the abode of philosophy where humans would first need to proceed in order to be in philosophy. In other words, as we're going to see here, what Heidegger is driving at is that you can't be introduced into philosophy in the sense of brought into it because you're always already as a human being in philosophy, but you can be in it knowingly or unknowingly, with clarity or with confusion, uh, with some way of orienting yourself or at a complete loss. In truth, as Heidegger continues, historical humans always already stand within philosophy because they do so essentially. Therefore, strictly thought, there is no introduction, no leading into philosophy. But how are historical humans in philosophy? It is definitely not merely by the fact that humans make use of philosophical knowledge that is handed down from somewhere. It's not just that we have a traditional interpretation of some quote-unquote philosophical concepts. Historical humans think of the origin and future from out of these, respectively. From out of... um, Let's see. Historical humans think of the origin and future from out of these, respectively. From the horizon of such reflection humans always think what is present so from the horizon of uh the origin and the future we think what is present and so far as historical humans think what has been what comes and what is present they think this will remind you from what we were talking this will remind you of what we talked about in the last sessions um so far as historical humans think what has been what comes and what is present they think beings as a whole according to all ways of being So here again, Heidegger very quickly moves from there's no introduction to philosophy in the sense of moving us where we aren't because we are always already amidst a way of thinking about the totality of beings and situated as we saw in the last live stream in the abode in the distinction between being and being. So you're always in philosophy, always already there. If humans think that which is and they think this constantly in some way, then humans also think and have always already thought what has been and will come. Thinking in this way, humans already move everywhere within this thinking, which has been called philosophy since antiquity. So we're all philosophers in that non-technical sense. We're all thinking being. As reflective humans, humans quote unquote philosophize. By moving within such thinking, humans sojourn in the region of what remains to be thought for this thinking. So it's there for our thinking doesn't mean we're always, as I say, clear about exactly how it relates to us. What is to be thought and also somehow always already what has been thought is the realm of the sojourn for humans insofar as they philosophize. This realm of the sojourn is philosophy. Let me just stop there for a minute. Again, one of the reasons I want to share this with you is because if you don't already read philosophers or you read them in a specific way or you have some preconceived notion of what philosophy is... It's always nice to encounter someone like Heidegger or Plato in the Republic, to give you another example, who wants to initiate us or bring us into clarity about what it is to philosophize. And again, so many people teach that it's like a separate technique or a separate set of sciences. And by the way, I'm not saying there's anything against that way of looking, but Heidegger's brings something different to light. We sojourn in the realm of what has been thought what is to be thought and what remains to be thought as those who are immersed in thinking and speaking being whether we know it or not we believe we know in which realm and space buildings stand like i go out in the street and i can see look out my window i see the realm and space in which buildings stands a uh, buildings stand and in which realm the trees grow like the trees grow in nature and the buildings stand in my civic life architectural life, we barely think about which realm philosophy thinking is in and in which realm art is and what they are. We do not even think about the fact that philosophy and art could themselves in each case be the realms of the sojourn of the human. So it's not just that you live in cities with buildings and in nature with trees. You actually, Heidegger is suggesting here, as a human being, live in philosophy and art in thinking and poetizing that's the proper realm of human existence not just the city and the park philosophy and poetry thinking and poetizing now of course we don't have full clarity yet on what Heidegger means by those but he's giving us his introduction we are now saying historical humans are already in philosophy humans no longer need to be introduced to philosophy They cannot just be led at one point into philosophy, nor can they be placed into philosophy from somewhere else. I'm going to continue in a minute, but I always think about this book and these passages. When people ask me who are new to philosophy, quote unquote, new to this way of thinking, they say, where should I start? That's one of the most common questions that I get. Sometimes they mean, where should they start in the courses that I offer at my school? Sometimes they mean, where should I start in reading Plato? Where should I start in reading Heidegger? How do I get my introduction to philosophy that's in some sense the question where to begin what I like to say is start anywhere and keep going because as long as you start and keep going you have this gradual process of deepening according to Heidegger where you already are your understanding your world disclosure anyway it's complicated but okay all humans are already in philosophy we are now saying, to repeat, historical humans are already in philosophy. They could not just be led to it or placed into it from somewhere else. But if this is true, then all humans are philosophers or, as we also like to say, thinkers. In a certain way, that is what they are. The human among all beings is that being that thinks. The human is the thinking being. Therefore and only therefore can and must there be thinking ones in a distinguished sense among humans. Only because humans are thinking beings can there be thinkers in the specialized sense. Thinkers in the particularly intense and deep sense. Therefore, and simply for this reason, there is also thoughtlessness only among humans, which continually has its root in a loss of reflection. There's no thoughtlessness among beings that don't think. Humans are the thinking being. We're the ones who have both the thinkers and the thoughtless, but only because we are the ones who think in the first place. So no introduction to philosophy, you're always already in it, That's the upshot in the import of the first section here. I want to keep going. I'm not going to be doing Heidegger live streams all the time. In fact, I was going to do some Leo Strauss this morning on Plato, but I saw this book lying there and I remembered how much I liked um, reading it myself the first time. So I thought I'd share it with you. Nice to be with you. Those of you who are here, profit of being. Thank you for the comment. I'm glad that the channel has helped you understand and grasp Heidegger's thought and uh, lyrics of dust nice to be with you as well so section two here the need for a guide to become at home in genuine thinking so we might have got the impression in section one that if everyone's already a philosopher then there's nothing really more to do Uh, we know that there's a problem there because clearly some people are professionally trained let's say as philosophers or more competent expositors and understand easily and understand so what does it mean if we're all philosophers then how does Heidegger make sense of the fact that there are people like him, for example, who clearly are outstanding in that regard? So here he says, the need for a guide to become at home in genuine thinking. According to what was said, philosophizing is thinking and all thinking is already somehow a philosophizing. Philosophizing belongs in a way that remains to be determined more closely to the region itself within which the human as the reflective thinking being sojourns yet humans can truly be at home or not at home in this place where they sojourn according to their essence so we're all already in philosophy but we can be in that realm at home or not at home we can be there okay i don't want to use other jargon yet we can be there at home or not at home Uh, humans can truly be at home or not at home in this place where they sojourn according to their essence dwelling is what we call the native sojourning in the realms in which the human belongs to dwell is to be at home in the realm where you belong essentially not everybody is at home in the realm where they belong essentially Therefore, not everybody dwells in the realm of philosophy Therefore, Heidegger continues, there is need of a guide to be at home in philosophy. So in other words, somebody who guides you in philosophy, somebody who gives you an introduction to philosophy that lands in a sense, isn't putting you anywhere that you're already not. Rather, they're helping you dwell in the realm that's essential to you as a thinking being, Heidegger is saying. Through this guiding, our thinking, which is not always at home in what is its most own, Learns to dwell and thus becomes a more genuine thinking. So those of you who have read Heidegger before or who have heard about Heidegger before or who know some Heideggerian jargon, there's this word that you hear in English, authenticity, be authentic and inauthenticity. So you have inauthenticity, authenticity. And I would like to suggest as a way of helping you understand what Heidegger is saying here that it maps onto being at home and not being at home in this realm in which essentially we belong so to be to be authentically is to be at home in to be dwelling in the realm that is essential to us inauthenticity is where we are not at home in that realm we're still there but we're turned away from it we're focused on something else we're grass is greener on the other side okay we're away from ourselves if that helped, great. If it didn't, never mind. We should in no way abandon immediate daily thinking through the guide to philosophy. Instead, we, the thinking beings, should become more thoughtful in this daily thinking. I like that. I want to restate it. We're not abandoning our daily thinking. We're not dropping all of our ordinary ways of life, all of our ordinary encounters, cutting it off and abstracting ourselves entirely from our life the way we normally live it like he says to repeat we should in no way abandon immediate daily thinking through the guide to philosophy instead we the thinking being should become more thoughtful i like to think of that as an intensification captivation you're not ditching this life you're becoming more attuned to more intensely aware of and more captivated by existence, life, and thought. So to repeat here, we, the thinking beings, should become more thoughtful in this daily thinking, which means that we should become more contemplative and more reflective, and thereby learn to genuinely think. Philosophy is not, however, what it widely and continually appears to be, the remote or the beyond of real life. Again, it's not a transcendence that leaves this life and its reality behind. Rather, philosophy as genuine thinking is the continually unknown region in which habitual thinking constantly sojourns without becoming versed or at home in it as the property that has been allocated to the essence of humans insofar as they are the thinking ones. That's a complex phrase, but I think that it's very graspable. And you can have it resonate for you. So let's just read it again and make sure that it all lands. Philosophy as genuine thinking is the continually unknown region. So we, the thinking being, dwell in a region that for us as a rule is unknown. It's like driving your car, whereas the operation of your car in the engine and all of that may be as a rule for most of you unknown or not, but okay, in this analogy, So we have this continually unknown region in which we dwell, the region of thinking being. We saw in the previous live streams on the basic concepts book just how much we dwell there and just how continually unknown it is for us as a region. And yet it's that region in which habitual thinking, our thinking, constantly sojourns. We're always immersed in it. It always saturates our thinking. It's our abode. And yet we constantly sojourn there without becoming versed or at home in it right not everybody masters in thought the domain that characterizes our essential being as thinking beings okay so without becoming versed or at home in it as the property that has been allocated to the essence of humans in other words it belongs to us it characterizes who we are it's our property as humans that insofar as they are the thinking ones So it belongs to us as thinking beings to be exposed to the thinking of being. We dwell in that thinking. It saturates us, whether we know it or not. As a rule, we don't know it, but we can come to know it. And what's helpful in coming to know it is a guide, a guide who helps us to dwell in that realm, who helps us to understand it, to see it, okay, to bring it into relief, take it out of the background in a way, or even, you know, distinguish it as the background and have it be something that we become aware of so that was the end of section two the need for a guide to become at home in genuine thinking let me just restate that in one more way an introduction to philosophy is not not the acquisition of a set of concepts in this external way or putting you into a field a specialized technical field an introduction to philosophy is this a guide who helps you become at home in genuine thinking helps you become at home there where you already are Uh, okay give me a second here I want to look over at the chat nice to be with everybody yes there was a video on the third division Uh, I'm doing these pretty much spontaneously that's why you may not get like you know a day in advance that I have a live stream planned on such and such a book or lecture I woke up I wanted to discuss this introduction with you so here we are Uh, very nice comments I appreciate that And uh, I'm glad that you guys are getting something out of Heidegger. So let's move to section three here. Section three is called the manifold ways for a guide to genuine thinking. The question, what now is? So we've seen that we don't need an introduction, the sense of an external being put into this realm. We're already there, but we do need a guide because that realm is not always clear to us. We don't dwell in it like it's our own. So, okay, but there are many ways in which you can be guided into genuine thinking. Hence, the manifold ways for a guide to genuine thinking. The question what now is. You see that right there? Okay, that's what we're about to read. Yet, just as the ways and sojourns of daily thinking are diverse and diversely directed, so too are the possibilities that stand open for a guide to philosophy. We are constantly and everywhere thinking that which is, even if we are only rarely aware of this thinking, as we saw from the basic concepts lecture. By the way, let me pause again. Uh, One of the reasons why I like to share this Heidegger with you, and at my school I have courses on black notebooks and being in time, contributions to philosophy of the event. Here we've discussed uh, basic concepts and some other works. You begin to get not just what did Heidegger write in this book, what did he write in that book, what does he say in the 50th book? But you get on his wavelength. Once one or two of these big ideas have really clicked, you'll have the key to all of Heidegger. In some sense, you'll always be able to enter into the spirit of his questioning and the spirit of his reflections. So this lecture, this is from 1944 1945. Basic concepts from sometime in the 30s, being a time 1927. Okay, what is called thinking seven years after this, sometime in the 50s. So there are like you know 20, 30 years that can separate these lectures. And yet, if you get on Heidegger's wavelength, you'll be able to move from one to the other, I wouldn't say seamlessly, okay? But you'll always be able to penetrate past the apparent obscurity of his writing and thinking into what he's actually trying to say. So just like we saw in basic concepts that we're constantly and everywhere thinking that which is, even if we are only rarely aware of this thinking, now you get it why he's mentioning it here, and what it means for the problem of an introduction or a guide into genuine thinking. Okay, we're constantly and everywhere thinking that which is, even if we are only rarely aware of this thinking, therefore, we often only fleetingly grasp that which is. We barely have an understanding of the way of being in which beings, so diversely spoken of and compelled, show themselves to us. So we can speak of beings in many ways, but we barely have an understanding of the way of being in which beings show themselves to us. So again, the same problem from basic concepts. We're immersed in it, and yet we don't quite see it. It's always there for us, and yet there's some perplexity, some we've forgotten and we've forgotten or forgetting. When we ask the simple question, what now is, was ist jetzt? Then the answers to this question could hardly be reviewed and counted. For the question is already ambiguous despite its simplicity. Okay, the question, what now is? The confusing multiplicity of the answers corresponds to this question's ambiguity. We ask, what now is? As long as we do not thoughtlessly recite the question, always a risk, not just in dealing with Heidegger, but in dealing with anything, doing it thoughtlessly and therefore missing what it has to say to us. As long as we do not thoughtlessly recite the question, The preliminary question already becomes necessary. What does now mean here? Do we mean this moment, this hour, this day, today? How far does today reach? By today, do we mean the present time, jetztzeit? How far does this extend? Do we mean the 20th century? What would this be without the 19th century? Does the present time mean the entire modern era? Does the question, what now is, ask about what is in this time, the modern era? So Heidegger is leading us into a reflection here, kind of into a meditation. We have the seemingly simple question, what now is? But in fact, we have the very large preliminary question, what do we mean by now? 21st century, 20th century, uh, 2022, December, now we move on. What do we mean by is, is it, and does it count as the beings that can appear before us as tangibly available? So are we talking about what are the things that are now that we can see and observe the events, the goings on the beings? So not only do we need to delineate what we mean by now, we also need to delineate. Are we talking about beings or what? To go on with what Heidegger says, do these beings ever remain only a fleeting appearance of what really is in the background and has being? In other words, when we ask what now is, maybe we're asking about the spirit of the time, the shape of the age, the nature of the era and epoch, as opposed to the various goings on. What does one generally mean today in the current time and in the modern era? By being which we have to ask if we're asking the question what now is beings are the real which and the german here for those of you who want it uh wirklich beings are the real which are accessible to reification beings being then means if beings are the real being means reality objectivity if we take beings as the real being is reality okay objectivity but what does reality mean? In what sense is realization meant? What does objectivity mean? Who objectifies what? By what right does the objective precisely count as that which is? So again, we have, the, we have the words, the question, what now is? Do you mean what now is real? What now is objective? In what sense are we taking the is? He says here, well, we might automatically take it as reality and objectivity, but by what right does the objective precisely count as that which is? Depending on the sense in which we understand the now and the is, and depending on the clarity, thoroughness, and reflectiveness with which we think that which has been understood, the answer to the question, what now is, will turn out differently. I hope that you can see that. What now is? Now in the modern era, now in the Kali Yuga, now in the postmodern West, now, okay? And is, is in the sense of beings, reality, objectivity, the shape of the age, the spirit of the age, Nonetheless, the many irreconcilable answers can be brought to agreement as soon as we are able to think the mentioned questions from out of a genuine thinking. So we had introduction to philosophy. There isn't one, properly speaking, because we're always already in it. But we need a guide because we can be made to dwell at home in the region that is characteristic of the human as the thinking being, the region of philosophizing. But there are many ways that we could guide thinking. Because there are many ways that we can answer the question about what now is, for example. And yet, when we think that question genuinely, the many irreconcilable answers are brought to agreement. So now Heidegger is going to tell us, how are they brought to agreement? He moves to section four, called the consideration of thinking in its relation to poetizing as one of the ways for a guide to genuine thinking. Nietzsche and Holderlin. That's the whole name of this section which can you see it Uh, there we go like that okay the consideration of thinking and its relation to poetizing as one of the ways for a guide to genuine thinking Nietzsche and Holderlin let's see what Heidegger says about that but first let me just say hello to everybody who's here nice to be with you good to see you I always appreciate you spending uh, your time here with uh, Heidegger and I'm glad I have the opportunity to to read it and discuss it with you. We're covering just the first little bit of this introduction to philosophy, thinking and poetizing kind of spontaneously because I thought it'd be nice to share it with you. So here we go. Section four. At this stage of genuine thinking, only those can guide us, of course, who already genuinely think. Thinking in such a way, they already are saying to us in advance and have already said what now is. They are the thinkers and poets. So we have the question, what now is? And who gives us guidance in that question? The thinkers and the poets, because they're the ones who say what now is. They're the ones who in their thinking and in their speaking make a breakthrough knowingly in a dwelling way into the essential realm of being. Okay, so who can answer the question, what now is in a way that guides us? Thinkers and poets. Well, now Heidegger raises this question. Why do we suddenly name the poets as well? When after all, we're dealing with thinking. Fair enough question, right? He's been saying the human is the thinking being and we're going to be thinking, philosophizing is the realm of thinking. Why suddenly poets? Where did that come from? We haven't been prepared for it yet. Are the poets actually thinkers? Are thinkers fundamentally poets? By what right do we like to name them thinkers and poets in the same breath? Is there a distinct yet still concealed relationship between both of them in their essence? Does the relation of both consist in the fact that thinking is a meditation, the German Sinnen, just as poetizing? Okay. What's the relationship between thinking and poetizing that Heidegger should have brought them together here? Part of what is peculiar to the thinker and the poet is that they receive their meditation from the word and shelter it In saying, such that thinkers and poets are the genuine preservers of the word in language. Then thinking, just as much as poetizing, always has its distinction in the fact that they are always a saying and a meditation wherein the awareness of what is is expressed in language. In thinking, you put being into speech. And in poetizing, you put being into speech. And Heidegger wants to understand why these two forms of speaking being as somehow the peak intensity or clarity of speaking being have these different expressions, different forms. We wouldn't necessarily say that poets and thinkers are one and the same. And yet each of them shelters in their saying, in their speaking the meaning of being if it were otherwise then we would lack the reason for why we like to mention thinking and poetizing philosophy and poetry together in the expression thinkers and poets so you might have heard germans are a nation of thinkers and poets so there's already a ready-made phrase that brings thinking and poetry or thinkers and poets together how wants to get to breakthrough to the essential root of that This happens to us almost automatically. We are touched and attracted by a vaguely intuited connection between the two. Maybe we still recall that we are called the people of poets and thinkers. Not only are we called the people, but we also are the people. So Germans are the people of thinkers and poets. Well, are we that people? He next asks. Are we already that people by virtue of the fact that we historically affirm and announce that there have been these great thinkers and poets among the Germans? So there have been great German poets. There have been great German thinkers. Therefore, the Germans are a people of thinkers and poets. But Heidegger says, hey, the fact that there have been philosophers and poets, does that automatically mean that Germans are now the nation of thinkers and poets? Or must there be something more substantial something more fundamental about the people's exposure to the realm of philosophizing of thinking and of speaking being than the fact that there once were thinkers and poets. You know what I mean? Like, can you just shine with the reflected light of the great Germans of the past? Or do you have to have a breakthrough here and now into the realm of that great light yourself An introduction to philosophy? The cohesion of thinking and poetizing seems to be so intimate that thinkers stand out at times through the poetic character of their thinking, and that poets only become poets through their nearness to the genuine thinking of thinkers. Okay, so poetizing and philosophizing, excuse me, poetizing and thinking, they come so close that the thinkers must poetize and the the poets must think for the essential expression the peak of their own activity and action that's the cohesion of thinking and poetizing that seems to be so intimate one tends to call the last thinker of western philosophy frederick nietzsche the poet philosopher and one thinks of the poet from thus spoke zarathustra by the way at Millermanschool.com, i have a course on nietzsche's thus spoke zarathustra but here He's reminding us, bringing Nietzsche's Zarathustra close to the theme of poetry. Rightfully so. One also knows that the first thinkers of Western philosophy expressed their thought in so-called didactic poems. Okay, Thinking and poetizing. Conversely, we know that the poet Holderlin in part owes what is far-reaching, still concealed, and all-anticipating in his thinking to a unique nearness to philosophy, a nearness which we otherwise do not encounter anywhere in this form, as long as we exclude the poets of the Greeks, Pindar and Sophocles, with whom Holderlin lived in a constant dialogue. The title of the lecture, Introduction to Philosophy, namely this lecture that we're reading together now, also bears the subtitle, as you can see, Thinking and Poetizing. As was said earlier, many ways stand open for the attempt at a guide to genuine thinking. One of the ways is to consider thinking in its relation to poetizing and to call attention to the relationship between thinking and poetizing. For example, why did Nietzsche write Zarathustra instead of just writing an essay by Nietzsche on exactly what he thinks? Why did he need to poetize through the creation of Zarathustra and even treat poetry as a theme in Zarathustra's speeches, why is that necessary for Nietzsche's thinking? So that's one way. One of the ways is to consider thinking in its relation to poetizing, and to call attention to the relationship between thinking and poetizing. This way, in turn, offers many kinds of outlooks, and thus many possible perspectives. In general, beginning a discussion about thinking and poetizing, by seemingly not having any visible foothold, could lead us quickly into groundlessness and fruitlessness. But, Heidegger continues, what would it be like if we were to look for poetizing and thinking where they encounter us at a peculiar necessity of their historical interrelation? That is to say, with Nietzsche, who as a thinker is a poet, and with Hölderlin, who as a poet is a thinker. So we're not just going to deal with the abstract question of the relation between philosophy, excuse me, thinking and poetizing, we're going to deal with the specific cases of the poetic philosopher Nietzsche and the philosophical poet Holderlin. Heidegger's suggesting. Both are, both thinkers and poets, both Nietzsche and Holderlin are both philosophers and poets in a distinguished reciprocal relationship between thinking and poetizing. Yet this interrelation is characterized and rooted completely differently in Nietzsche's thinking and in Holderlin's poetizing. So we have a... a, by the way, obviously both example, outstanding examples of German thinkers and poets. So you have a problem here or a question. The relationship between thinking and poetizing, the fact that you have it expressed in Nietzsche and Holderlin, but the fact that you have it expressed in these two very different ways. With both names, however, excuse me, with both names, moreover, we name a thinker and a poet who immediately concern our age in a still barely transparent way because they presumably go beyond us each in a different way. So it's not like Nietzsche and Holderlin are just some... You know, we just happen to pick them kind of uh, randomly. They have no additional significance. No, in the case of Nietzsche and Hölderlin, they tell us something about the shape of our world. They see it, understand it. They've broken through to what now is. We learn from them about what now is. We don't just pick them arbitrarily. Uh, To repeat, we name a thinker and a poet in Nietzsche and Hölderlin who immediately concern our age in a still barely transparent way because they presumably go beyond us each in a different way Nietzsche and Holderlin are then not just arbitrary examples of a special interplay between thinking and poetizing like we could have just randomly chosen anybody for some time now it has also become common to mention Holderlin and Nietzsche together regardless of what motivations determine this naming apart from whether Nietzsche's thinking distinguishes itself appropriately from Holderlin's poetizing but the very fact that Holderlin and Nietzsche are named together in such an emphasized way indicates that we stand in an essential relation to them. This poet Holderlin and this thinker Nietzsche historically concern us in a special way, even when we barely take notice of them or even if we know them only from our education. If we substitute the undetermined title, Thinking and Poetizing from the book, which you can see the covers on the screen, if we substitute the undetermined title thinking and poetizing with the names Nietzsche and Holderlin then the relationship between thinking and poetizing and the historical question concerning the relationship of both of them becomes historical and binding for us in a manifold sense both names are here intentionally not named according to the well-known historical succession Heidegger is not talking about influences again it's not an encyclopedic version of German philosophy and history the reason for this procedure he says will be obvious later first we will pay attention to Nietzsche's thinking So now we zoom in on Nietzsche, the thinker who poetizes. Later, Holderlin, the poet who thinks. Here, Nietzsche, the thinker who poetizes. If we attempt to think about Nietzsche's thinking, we are forced to contemplate what was thought by him, i.e. what was to be thought for him. So if we're trying to think Nietzsche, we want to think what was Nietzsche thinking about, what compelled his thinking, what did he regard as most thought-worthy we are at once necessitated to think that which now is with Nietzsche as the last thinker of the modern era. This last thinker of the modern era is the European thinker who thinks the modern essence of the West simultaneously with the historical essence of the modern world, history of the globe. So Nietzsche thinks simultaneously the modern essence of the West and the historical essence of the modern world history of the globe. If Nietzsche thinks what is, and thereby attempts to say what beings as a whole actually are with respect to their being, which is what it means to think what is, then Nietzsche says, all beings are, insofar as they are, will to power. But will and willing are also a becoming. However, since becoming as such also is, the question arises as to what being is proper to the will to power as the becoming of everything. Hold on. Nietzsche thinks beings as a whole and the being of beings, and he thinks it as will to power. But will is also a becoming, so he's thinking the being of beings as becoming. And the next question here, since becoming also is, what is the being of the will to power as the becoming of everything? Even though the fundamental trait of all beings in their being appears in the will to power, according to Nietzsche, the being character of this being, complicated phrase, that's why he also adds it here in German, the being character of this being still remains undetermined and unthought whenever we are merely content with saying all beings are will to power take it a step back we're going to continue with Heidegger but Nietzsche thinks the being of beings thinks it as will to power will is becoming therefore he thinks the being of beings as becoming but the being of becoming we don't know yet in this exposition now exactly to what extent this thinking which thinks all beings as will to power and expresses its main thought with this verbal framework should have a distinguished nearness to poetizing is initially difficult to see So if Nietzsche's great thought, philosophically, is that the being of beings is will to power, well, why does that necessitate his poetizing? Okay, it's difficult to see. Why should it have a distinguished nearness to poetizing? What does poetry have to do in the realm of the will to power? By the way, this is reminding me of passages in Thus Spoke Zarathustra that I hope you read, Thus spoke Zarathustra. I recommend the commentary by Lawrence Lampert called Nietzsche's Teaching. That's the one that I used in my course on Zarathustra. There are other ones, but well worth reading the two books together. And I hope you consider doing the course too. But let's see here. So, what does poetry have to do in the realm of the will to power? Or is that which we call poetizing not everywhere of the same essence? To what extent poetizing becomes essential for Nietzsche's thinking in an emphasized way? Why this thinker must poetize the figure of Zarathustra? and what especially this poetizing means within his thinking, all of this we can clarify only... Sorry, I'll read it correctly. All of this we can only clarify if we experience Nietzsche's thinking as the genuine European planetary thinking. Remember, he thought the essence of Europe and he thought the essence of the globe in modernity. After all, one already thinks along with and thus affirms Nietzsche's thinking wherever his philosophy is rejected and condemned according to loudly declared assurances. Even the people who reject Nietzsche affirm his thinking, obviously unthinkingly. They are adopting Nietzsche's premises even in rejecting Nietzsche. Let me read that again. One already thinks along with and thus affirms Nietzsche's thinking wherever his philosophy is rejected and condemned according to loudly declared assurances. To what extent these rejections merely hit upon an imaginary shape And how frequently the affirmations do so is a question in itself. Before addressing this, it would be first necessary to ask if it's even possible to reject an essential thinking. This peculiar behavior is presumably a self-delusion. I'm going to continue reading Heidegger in a minute, but I want you to understand this thought, which is not intuitively obvious at first glance. Essential thinking, thinking about the being of beings. Nietzsche's breakthrough is to think of the being of beings as will to power. How do you reject, what would a rejection be, what would a refutation be of a thought concerning the being of beings? If I say it's raining outside and you look and it isn't, we know that what I said is not the case. When I'm talking about empirically verifiable states of affairs among beings, it seems like it's pretty straightforward. In some cases, obviously, we could create situations where it's not straightforward, but you know what I mean. The realm of refutation seems like it applies to cases like that and to some other cases. But Heidegger, not only here, but for example, in contributions to philosophy of the event and passages that are really very powerful, says he gets us to wonder whether there is such a thing as refutation in the realm of essential thinking concerning the being of beings. Can you ever refute the view that the world is will to power? Can you ever refute the Cartesian view? Or can you only have some sort of response, some alternate projection, some alternate, alternate interpretation of the being of beings? So I want to just remind you what he says here is a question. In passing, he says that it would be necessary to ask if it's even possible to reject an essential thinking. Maybe the great philosophers, what you do with them is not refutation. Like he's got this beautiful passage in Contributions to Philosophy of the Event where he says, the great philosophies are towering mountains. You don't refute the towering mountains. You don't even conquer them by climbing to their peak. You just let them be what they are, configuring the height, the breadth, and the depth of the expanses in which you live, of the landscape. So the great philosophies aren't meant to be refuted. They're not even refutable when they're dealing with thinking beings as a whole and thinking the being of beings. It's, a, it's something to ponder. It's not something you're going to grasp right away. The European planetary trait in Nietzsche's metaphysics is itself, however, only the consequence of that fundamental trait of his philosophy through which his philosophy reaches back almost against his knowledge into the concealed destiny of Western thinking and in a certain way completes its determination. So long as we do not consider this fundamental trait of the thinking of the last modern thinker, the confrontation with Nietzsche has still not begun. So, Nietzsche is the last thinker, but Nietzsche's thinking is determined by the first thinkers. And therefore, in thinking through Nietzsche, we get the whole history of philosophy from its beginning to its end which Heidegger also called metaphysics. In Nietzsche, we get the culmination of the whole first history of philosophy, which in some sense Heidegger completes, and in another sense, he also re re-inaugurate, another beginning of philosophy. That's his inceptual thinking, for example, in the title of Alexander Dugan's book, Martin Heidegger, The Philosophy of Another Beginning. Okay, once again, just a reminder, I've got courses on Nietzsche, Heidegger, Dugan, and others in the school section five i actually want to finish with you together uh, today uh the end of this introductory part of the introduction to philosophy we are about halfway through so i'm going to keep going and hopefully you're getting some value out of this like share subscribe etc the confrontation with thinking that encounters us historically nietzsche's main and fundamental thought so we're again what is the relationship between thinking and poetizing we're taking nietzsche as our Poetizing thinker. We see that Nietzsche has come at the end of philosophy, that to understand him, to have a proper confrontation with him, we need to see the sense in which his philosophy reaches back into the concealed destiny of Western thinking and in a certain way completes its determination, hence the end. And now we move one step further into the confrontation. The confrontation with thinking that encounters us historically, Nietzsche's main and fundamental thought. In a confrontation, Auseinandersetzung, uh, in a confrontation, thought that speaks to us sets itself up over against our own thinking. Perhaps with this stepping apart from each other, and he's playing in the German here in a way that we won't see quite as clearly in the English, but okay. Perhaps with this stepping apart from each other, the space is formed out of which there might come to fruition an appreciation of what characterizes the essentiality and unreachable strength of the thought that encounters us. So basically just to restate that, We're going to try to have an encounter with with Nietzsche's thinking in a way that truly opens up the space of genuine thought, not some sort of external superficial uh, criticism that does nothing, goes nowhere, and just flatters our lame little egos. The real confrontation does not feel out weaknesses and mistakes. It does not criticize, but rather brings the thinking that encounters us historically before our thinking. We want the shape of Nietzsche's thought. We don't want to nitpick this or that. Brings the thinking that encounters us historically before our thinking and into the open space of a decision so we can actually see what was at stake in the way that Nietzsche understood the being of beings as will to power. And if we really get clear on that and we set it before ourselves, we'll have the space of a decision concerning the being of beings that becomes inevitable through the encounter, therefore. We cannot contemplate Nietzsche's or any other thinkers thought that encounters us historically through any other path than that of confrontation, okay? Outside under Setsung. Through this confrontation, we ourselves are first drawn into the fundamental trait of the thinking that encounters historically in order to respond to it historically. Again, I want to restate that. If you really want to, hold on, what's going on with the focus there? If you really want to get into Nietzsche's thought, Heidegger's thought, Plato's thought, somebody's thought, You need a genuine confrontation, not some low-level external nitpicking, a confrontation that draws us into the fundamental trait of the thinker that we're encountering. Were the poetic quality in Nietzsche's thinking not merely to be an accompaniment? By the way, there are many comparatively thoughtless critics who read great thinkers in that sort of nitpicking way. They just drag them down to the lowest level. They miss all of the significance at the same time as they flatter their own uh quote-unquote abilities were the poetic quality in Nietzsche's thinking not merely to be an accompaniment contingent on the personal predisposition of the thinker and an adornment to his philosophy in other words does Nietzsche poetize in his figure of Zarathustra merely because he had a personal proclivity towards the dramatic format were the poetizing essence to be grounded in the fundamental trait of this thinking then it would be necessary beforehand to recognize and contemplate the fundamental trait of this thinking, Nietzsche's fundamental thought. We want to understand whether there's anything essential about the fact that Nietzsche's thinking poetizes, so that we can see how both thinking and poetizing are a speaking being that shelters in the word. Nietzsche's main thought is expressed in his doctrine of the will to power. If I'm not mistaken, some commentary, some intelligent commentators like Lawrence Lampert, they Uh, contest that and suggest that Nietzsche's main thought is expressed in his doctrine of the eternal return or eternal recurrence but okay we'll go with Heidegger here and I leave that suggestion about the eternal return for those of you who want to think uh further Nietzsche's main thought is expressed in his doctrine of the will to power nevertheless this main thought is not yet the fundamental thought of his thinking oh we're getting actually to what I just said the main thought still does not express the to be thought, excuse me, this main thought still does not express the to be thought, which Nietzsche names with his own phrase, the thought of thoughts. Uh Aha. So Nietzsche now will tell us what, excuse me, Heidegger will now tell us what Nietzsche regarded as the thought of thoughts. The fundamental thought of his thinking conceals itself in Nietzsche's doctrine of the eternal return of the same. This thought is first thought in the thinking that poetizes the figure of Zarathustra. In other words, where do we get Nietzsche on the eternal recurrence of the same? In Zarathustra. Why? Why does he need Zarathustra, a poetic figure, to express his thought of thoughts, the thought of the eternal recurrence of the same, eternal return of the same? This thought is first thought in the thinking that poetizes the figure of Zarathustra, or more specifically, immediately prepares this poetizing. If we pay attention to this, then it is no stretch to suppose that the doctrine of the eternal return of the same is something poetized or something merely invented. In his much-read book about Nietzsche, Ernst Bertram calls the doctrine of the eternal return, which Nietzsche claimed to be, quote, the thought of thoughts, unquote, this deceptively aping crazy mystery of the later Nietzsche. Here we must briefly note that this doctrine does not merely stem from the later Nietzsche, but rather is already thought out and laid out in total clarity and scope prior to the articulation and configuration of the main thought and before the doctrine of the will to power. So the eternal return of the same is not later Nietzsche. It's essential Nietzsche. It's even before the will to power. Whether or not one may dispense with the thought of the eternal return of the same as a crazy mystery, and by doing so devaluate it as inane and expendable for Nietzsche's philosophy as a whole, depends on the decision of whether and how Nietzsche's teaching of the eternal return of the same goes together with his teaching of the will to power. By the way, on this question, I learned the most from Leo Strauss and Lawrence Lampert. Leo Strauss's lectures on Zarathustra, Lawrence Lampert's book on Zarathustra, they'll give you some understanding, which I find helpful and recommend, of the relationship in Nietzsche between the will to power and the eternal return of the same. I think I have some free videos on that on this channel from the course, but Lawrence Lampert, Leo Strauss on Zarathustra. But let's continue with uh, Nietzsche here. So once again, whether or not one may dispense with the thought of the eternal return of the same as a crazy mystery, and by doing so devaluate it as inane and expendable for Nietzsche's philosophy as a whole, depends on the decision of whether and how Nietzsche's teaching of the eternal return of the same goes together with his teaching of the will to power however this decision can only be made if one first asks what the fundamental thought and the main thought think in Nietzsche's thinking it remains to be asked whether this distinction between the fundamental thought and the main thought okay between the will to power the thought of the will to power and the thought of the eternal return of the same whether that distinction is only necessary in relation to Nietzsche's philosophy or whether this distinction conceals a relationship that characterizes all of metaphysics as such and that thereby comes to light in a special way in the era of the completion of metaphysics, namely in Nietzsche. So is this dualism, as it were, between two kinds of fundamental thought, which he's calling here the main thought and the fundamental thought, will to power, eternal return of the same, the thought of the being of beings and then some other version of the being of the being of beings or however you want to put it these two elements is that just accidental in Nietzsche's Zarathustra or is it essential to the whole history of metaphysics that there should be that duality these questions have never been asked at all so don't be surprised if you're even pretty confident in philosophizing and this is leaving you perplexed because these questions have never been asked at all let alone sufficiently answered the discussion of these questions is the touchstone On which every interpretation of Nietzsche's philosophy must prove itself. But the arbitrariness and negligence in the interpretation and assimilation of Nietzsche's philosophy have meanwhile thrived to such an extent that one can dare to praise the doctrine of the will to power as the greatest insight, and in the same breath dismiss the doctrine of the eternal return of the same as Nietzsche's temporary private religious opinion. In other words, the people who are commenting on Nietzsche and trying to understand the relationship between will to power and eternal return of the same are arbitrary and negligent in their interpretations. So long as the confrontation with Nietzsche's thinking remains in such a terrible state, every position on this philosophy, whether it results in affirmation, negation, or mediation, is necessarily untenable. It doesn't really matter if you're for Nietzsche or against him, or you have some version of Nietzscheanized this or that, if you haven't confronted his thinking the way it deserves to be confronted, all the rest is untenable. So long as this thinking remains opaque for us, with respect to the interior relationship of his fundamental thought and his main thought, will the power return or return to the same, we may not claim to know this thinking as a thinking. Yet, if this is the case, how are we to find out whether and exactly how poetizing is essential in this thinking, such that we can speak of the thinker Nietzsche as the poet of Zarathustra? If we prepare ourselves for a guide into genuine thinking, which again is Heidegger's version of an introduction to philosophy, being guided into genuine thinking, if we prepare ourselves for a guide into genuine thinking, By attempting to give a few indications of thinking and poetizing, then this indicating can only happen on the path of a confrontational setting apart. In other words, as we said, an essential confrontation with Nietzsche's thought, which brings the thinker who concerns us and the poet who concerns us to language in his own saying. We speak of indicating. That should imply that what is attempted here is limited in many respects and is content to call attention to something essential. Heidegger is not giving you the last word on Nietzsche's poetizing thinking he's trying to give you some hint some access some indication give you some light first of all it is a matter of following the thinker Nietzsche into the thinking of his fundamental thought in order to become ready for treading the path that the fundamental thought shows us on this path we will be torn out of our normal everyday thinking and initially and frequently for a long time will be placed into the indeterminate such that we barely possess a reference through which to withstand the encounter of the thinking that concerns us. Beautifully said, and you should be aware that if you're going to get an introduction to philosophy in the Heideggerian sense as a guide into the thinking that belongs to your essence as a human being, you should be prepared for this. We will be torn out of our normal everyday thinking and initially and frequently for a long time will be placed into the indeterminate such that we barely possess a reference through which to withstand the encounter of the thinking that concerns us you're exposing yourself to indeterminacy for long periods of time but that's what it's going to take therefore it might do us well to pay attention to a few conditions that pertain to every attempt to think about the thinking of a thinker and now heidegger is going to say a little bit about that in this review section you see that review uh like he often has in his lectures, recapitulations. Here, he's also going to have a kind of recapitulation. We're going to cover that. And then I think we're going to stop. You should know that what we're reading together is the uh, first part, not even the first chapter, but just the introduction of Heidegger's introduction to philosophy, thinking, and poetizing. So let's go on. We are getting close to the end. By the way, thanks again for being here. Nicely with you. I hope this is helping you learn something about Heidegger and yourselves and the nature of thought and the history of philosophy and all of that uh like share subscribe etc and please check out my school when you have a minute philosophy is the thinking of thinkers heidegger writes they think that which is we saw right thinking is thinking being somehow knowingly not in the automatic way that we do so uh blindly but even in general humans always think that which is although usually ineptly and imprecisely and slightly forgetfully heidegger being nice Humans are the ones who think, but not always because of this are they also thinkers. Clear enough? The thinking of thinkers we call thinking, properly said, thinking. This word is said strictly for this. So we all think, but only thinkers think, okay? You get that. As humans always already think that which is, they constantly philosophize. Humans are already in philosophy. That is why humans cannot just be led into it. That was the impossibility of an introduction, as he said. Rather, a guide is required in order for humans to become more at home and to learn genuine dwelling where they always already sojourn, although ineptly and unadvisedly. Very now compactly stated, clearly stated, I hope, and you get a sense of what it means for Heidegger. You want to learn to genuinely dwell where you always already are. It's not the acquisition of a technical know-how. Philosophy is neither material for the classroom nor a field of knowledge that lies somewhere outside of the essentially human being. Philosophy, I mean, you can, it can be taught at times in a classroom and it can be approached as an external knowledge, but for Heidegger, properly speaking, it is the human essence to philosophize. Philosophy is around humans day and night like the sky and the earth, almost even closer than they are, like the brightness that rests between them which humans almost always overlook since they are only busy with what appears to them within the brightness. I'm going to say something about that in a minute. Sometimes, whenever it darkens, humans become especially attentive to the brightness around them. But even then, humans do not pay closer attention to it because they're accustomed to the fact that the brightness returns. So this is actually an important point. I'm just going to mention it in passing. I've made a lot of it in my other lectures and videos. But where he says here, Humans almost always overlook the brightness since they're only busy with what appears to them within the brightness. I'm gonna give you a very quick and easy way of understanding that. You are wherever you're watching this, okay? And me, I'm in the studio. That's what I call this room, the studio. The, the things in the brightness of the studio are like the camera, the microphone, the book, the coffee cup, the computer, the monitor, etc. Those are like the stars in the sky, the celestial bodies, or the things that you can see in the light the beings, the things, the objects, okay? For you, it's whatever's there for you, the chair you're sitting in, etc. We busy ourselves with what appears to us within the brightness. That's the world, the world of the things within the room, let's say, within the world. But we're not always attentive to the brightness itself, to the illuminated space itself, to the openness itself, to the world in which these things are for us itself. And Heidegger wants to direct our attention in a, his own version of a kind of transcendental reduction here, wants to direct our attention from the things in and around our world, the things that are in the light, to the light itself, to the open expanse in which there's a world for us at all. And then he takes it a step further and he goes through the darkness behind the light. But never mind that, that's for... Uh, specialized lecture on another topic, okay, but to repeat here, philosophy is around humans day and night, like the sky and the earth, almost even closer than they are, like the brightness that rests between them, which humans almost always overlook since they're only busy with what appears to them within the brightness. Another way of putting that introduction to philosophy here is again bringing into starker relief the background that's always there for us, the background of that open brightness in in which we have our in which we live and have our being the guide for thinking excuse me the guide to thinking strives for it to become brighter around us and for us to become more circumspect of the brightness in this manner we will perhaps become more thoughtful as the thinking ones that we already are become who you are you're a thinker since thinking thinks that which is Beings must become more existent in order for us to be more thoughtful. But how do beings become more existent or also more non-existent? That depends on being itself and on how being sends itself to the human. I know that's, that's opaque, but it would take us too long for a full commentary. So let's go on and see how Heidegger himself elaborates. Many ways are open for a guide to thinking. This lecture bears the title thinking and poetizing. You see the cover on screen. I've showed it several times. Okay, thinking and poetizing. Usually we say poetizing and thinking in the reverse order according to talk of poets and thinkers. Like in the phrase, the Germans are a nation of poets and thinkers. The Germans are a people of poets and thinkers. Talk that affects us, namely Germans, Heidegger says, addressing his students here, in a peculiar way. Occasionally one hears someone say that we are the people, folk, of poets and thinkers. When foreigners say this, they mean that we are the people who primarily produce poets and thinkers while they produce machines and fuels. All too often, following these foreigners, we opine the same way as they do. In other words, we Germans, how saying, think of poetry and philosophy as the productions of the German people, like the American people are producing entertainment, such and such people are producing industry, and the Germans are producing poetry and thinking. That would be a mistake, okay? However, that we are the people of thinkers and poets and we are it and will be it, hi to your adds, does not mean that we produce thinkers and poets as figures for displays of culture. Rather, it means that our thinkers and poets produce us in our essence. You remember in the previous live streams, I talked about this. I want to try to say it again here in a way that's clear thinking and poetizing are not acts of cultural genius that come out of the head of some great individual mind and produce something that you can put into a museum of german culture the people are what they are are so we're talking about being the people are what they are only by virtue of the fact that there are poets and philosophers poets poets and philosophers poetizers and thinkers okay Our thinkers and poets produce us in our essence. The question remains as to whether we are essentially still great and noble enough to let ourselves be brought forth into our essence, regardless of what foreigners say about us. For they believe that as long as we simply behave and produce good thinkers and poets, they can remain undisturbed in their own engagements, they, the foreigners. This is another even greater error. After all, it could and will one day certainly be the case that our thinking and poetizing disturbs the foreigners, not in their engagements to be sure, but in their essence and makes them uncertain, bringing them to the verge of reflection. If the Germans are truly thinking, if they're truly putting being into speaking and sheltering it in the word then the foreigners will have to at some point confront german thought german philosophy and reflect on it and that might unsettle them in their essence if there's a threat to the american essence in its confrontation with german thinking like for example leo strauss suggested at the beginning of natural right in history yet even here the question at first emerges of whether and how we ourselves will protect our historical determination. Again, we the Germans, do we still have the nobility, as he said? Are we still uh, essentially still great and noble enough to let ourselves be brought forth into our essence as a people of thinkers and poets? Yet even here, the question at first emerges of whether and how we ourselves will protect our historical determination, even when the path of history upon which the historical determination becomes our destiny still remains so concealed. The title of the lecture... Introduction to Philosophy, Thinking, and Poetizing, thematizes thinking and poetizing. We are therefore paying attention to discussions about thinking and poetizing precisely by means of a comparison of both in Nietzsche and Hölderlin. By distinguishing thinking sharply from poetizing, thinking stands out into its essence more sharply. What does it mean to think? Why is thinking distinct from poetizing? How does thinking say the being of beings differently from the way poetizing says the being of beings Surely, if we only talk about thinking and poetizing in general, everything easily loses itself in the indeterminacy and and in the indeterminate and vacuous. For this reason, Heidegger recapitulating, we're thematizing the thinking of a determinate thinker and the poetizing of a determinate poet. Okay, Nietzsche Holderlin. Now he asks though fairly, why not Kant and Goethe? Why not some other thinker and poet? The lecture itself will provide the answer to this question. May we simply note for now extrinsically That Nietzsche is that thinker who thinks what now is. Holderlin is that poet who poetizes what now is. Okay? It's not, we don't live in Kant's world. We live in Nietzsche's world. That's why we don't go to Kant, we go to Nietzsche. Nietzsche expressed the being of our age. Nonetheless, what Nietzsche thinks remains infinitely distinct from what Holderlin poetizes, why are they brought together, But is it not supposedly the same what one thinks and the other poetizes? Is it not supposedly that which is? So aren't they both oriented towards the being of beings? Then there would have to be an infinite difference concealed in that which is in being itself. So let me just restate that point. Nietzsche is thinking the being of beings. Holderlin is there in the realm of the being of beings. And yet one of them is thinking, one of them is poetizing. Does that suggest we didn't get this formulation earlier, it's nice that we have it in the recapitulation, does that suggest that there's a difference concealed in being itself, which lends itself to these two different modes of access and modes of expression? There will also be reasons why Nietzsche the thinker is a poet in his own way and why Holderlin the poet is a thinker in his own way. In Nietzsche and Holderlin's thinking and poetizing, Poetizing and thinking are interwoven with one another in a single and wondrous way, if not completely joined together. And by the way, you should know that besides what he wrote on Nietzsche, and he has four thick volumes on him and has written about him in several of his other lectures and works, Heidegger also wrote several, uh, he also gave several lecture courses on the poetry of Holderlin, Okay, which you could read, they're published, and they're very uh, thought-provoking if still preliminarily, sorry, it still preliminarily looks as if we ought to be dealing with matters about Nietzsche's thinking and about Holderlin's poetizing. Pursuing this method of comparing them historically, we could certainly report many interesting matters. But this historical reasoning can never become a guide to thinking. This guide demands that we think with the thinker and poetize with the poet. So you can't just read the encyclopedia version You can't just say, oh, these are the influences. The only way to use Nietzsche and Holderlin as guides to thinking is to think with them, to think into their thinking. Okay. For this, it is necessary that we pursue the thinker by thinking and pursue the poet by poetizing. Only in this way will we experience what relation exists with the vacuous and that stands between Nietzsche and Holderlin. So first we bring them together externally, Nietzsche and Holderlin, But that and tells us what's the essential relationship between the thinking of the thinker and the poetizing of the poet. And we don't know that unless we get into it. One of the things I really love about Heidegger, reading him, teaching him, considering him, is that he's always telling you, you need a breakthrough into the realm of thinking. You're not gonna get it externally. The whole task is to get right into it, okay? Uh, Once again, only that way will you experience the relation between Nietzsche and Hölderlin, between thinking and poetizing. We faithfully think along with Nietzsche's thinking if and only if we contemplate the thought which the thinker himself calls the thought of thoughts. So you're not thinking about Nietzsche if you do a gender analysis of Nietzsche's thoughts on women or whatever, okay? He has a thought that he calls the thought of thoughts. He says, in effect this is it, this is the heart, this is the highest thought, this is the holy sanctum. This is the thought of the eternal return of the same. In the thinking of this thought, Nietzsche poetized the figure of Zarathustra. He expresses the thought of the eternal return of the same in the figure of Zarathustra, In thus spoke Zarathustra. Why? Why didn't he just write an essay on the eternal return of the same? An article, you know, like a clear treatise Why did he need Zarathustra? Nowhere else and at no previous time has a figure been poetized within the thinking of Western metaphysics. This only becomes necessary within the completion of modern metaphysics and of metaphysics in general, according to Heidegger. The fact that this poetizing becomes necessary is the sign of the completion of Western metaphysics. Now, here we have an assertion that we don't really have the evidence for it yet. We don't know what Heidegger means by that. Why is it a sign of the completion of Western metaphysics that Nietzsche needed Zarathustra for the expression of the thought of the eternal return of the same? Here, we only have the intimation that that's the case, but we don't have the elaboration of it. Only at one other time is thinking poetized in metaphysics, albeit differently, i.e. precisely at the beginning of Western metaphysics, you guys know what Heidegger has in mind here, where else conspicuously has thinking been poetized? If at the end of philosophy it's conspicuously the case in Nietzsche's Zarathustra, at the beginning of philosophy it's conspicuously the case where? In Plato's thinking. Plato poetizes his myths what this poetizing here and there is within thinking at the beginning and end of the history of Western philosophy, and whether these thinkers are thereby poets, is Plato a poet, is Nietzsche a poet, or remain thinkers, is something we must ask in due time. So that took us to the end of the introductory section of the prefatory remarks of Heidegger's introduction to philosophy, thinking, and poetizing. I wonder what your experience listening to that, uh, was maybe not the kind of introduction to philosophy you'd expect in other circumstances and provided by other, uh, people than Heidegger. But you listen, we may or may not go on in another live stream with this. I want to show you what lies ahead here. Chapter one, the fundamental experience and fundamental attunement of Nietzsche's thinking. That sounds like it could be interesting for us to go together. I'll go over together But I'm going to leave it there for now. I hope that gave you something insightful about Heidegger, about Nietzsche, about philosophy, about thinking, and about uh, all of that. So if you enjoyed this, once again, I just request, you know, to make it easy to find and easy to see, like, subscribe, share, comment. If you would like to make some comments, that'd be very nice, uh, helpful, and a good way to engage with other people who have been here. Let me pop over to the chat for a second. I remind you I have courses on Heidegger, Nietzsche, and Plato, and others in my school, Uh, let's see here. So can I just put this on screen? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Just gonna quickly review some of these comments here. So seven years of Aristotle to go. Yeah, that's because Heidegger once told his students that before they read Nietzsche, they should study Aristotle for 15 years. Something like that. And yet here we are discussing the will to power and eternal return of the same. So how dare we? Uh... (laughs) It's true in some sense that it's a lifelong labor to become well equipped really to encounter the thought of these thinkers. It's not something that you can just do on a lazy Sunday, but you know we do our best and uh, everybody has the task ahead of reading Plato and Aristotle and Heidegger's commentaries on each of them and everything else too so mr Mr. James loved Heidegger's comments on Nietzsche that's excellent he does write about him often and think about him uh, in the contributions and in his Nietzsche books and elsewhere, you know, because the confrontation with Nietzsche is a confrontation with the completion of Western metaphysics, with the end of the first history of philosophy. Absolutely uh, crucial, therefore, for, uh, for Heidegger. I guess there was some discussion here about um, Zarathustra. Yes, Nietzsche has the character Zarathustra posit the Ubermensch as a goal for humanity. It's true that at the start of *The Spoke Zarathustra, Zarathustra has a teaching about the, um, ubermensch but it's equally true that you should in my view study the whole of zarathustra with a competent commentary like strauss's or lampert's in order to see just how quickly in some sense zarathustra's initial mission in book one is uh frustrated and disappointed and how he has to sort of change his teaching as he goes along adjust it to the ability of his audience to understand zarathustra is a fascinating work NietzscheCourse.com. I have a course on it. But again, separately from the course, Zarathustra, Strauss, Lampert, absolutely a crucial reading. Uh, No Ubermensch analysis here from Heidegger. So that's why I didn't mention it when we were going over it. Some comments here about uh, some other topics. As you see here, yeah, Heidegger being a Nazi. I think I mentioned here that at the beginning, uh, let me just read that again for those of you who are not here at the very beginning and who want to be reminded that, well, this here, Introduction to Philosophy, it's an incomplete lecture course that originates from the 1944 w- winter semester at Freiburg. And uh, it was interrupted because, um, as it says here, the lecture course had to be canceled after the second session as a result of an intrusion from the National Socialist Party in the middle of November, 1944, So Heidegger's lecturing, and in come the National Socialists to say, stop. Uh, I think it also said that he was drafted into the war at this point. I'll tell you that in a second. This was his last academic lecture as an official tenured professor until what is called thinking, which followed seven years later after his teaching ban was lifted. Uh, Where did I see here that he was drafted? I think it was here one second. First published in 1990 as the second part of volume 50 of Heidegger's Complete Works. Introduction to Philosophy, Thinking, and Poetizing presents Heidegger's final lecture course given at the University of Freiburg in 1944 before he was drafted into the German army. Okay, so that's something. Uh, Once again, I appreciate the kind comments here. I'm glad you're getting something out of these live streams. It's certainly a pleasure for me to spend my time with you like this. Zarathustra is one of the most beautiful books ever written. Uh, I definitely encourage those of you who haven't yet done so to uh read it wait a minute what did i just do i think i'm able to put let's see boom there you go zarathustra is one of the most beautiful books ever written okay uh some other people were speculating you know about why nietzsche has recourse to poetry is it a literary device or is it like heidegger's suggesting essential to the nature of metaphysical thinking at the beginning and end of its history All right, well, I suggest then that we leave it, uh, leave it there for today. Thanks for spending your time here. Have a great Monday. See you in the next video.